This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode one. I will tell the story of the Padre Island 110 miler held from 1953 to 1956, perhaps the first American ultramarathon held in the post-war modern era. Wow! This is a re-recording of that episode. If you are new and are going to binge listen to these episodes, the quality of the first 10 to 15 were rough until I learned how to podcast well. But still listen. There is important history in these first few episodes. Producing this podcast is a labor of love and drains my pockets to produce. If you enjoy them, please help by contributing a little each month. Go to ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to become my partner. That's ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to become a contributing Patreon member. Okay. What was the first American ultra-distance race in the modern era? Perhaps the answer is the Padre Island Walkathon 110-miler, a three-day stage race that was started in 1953. This unusual race was a point-to-point race that ran along the sandy beaches of the Gulf of Mexico in Texas. Those who put it on were very forward-thinking, introducing features that would be used in ultras decades later. Previously, long endurance races were mostly limited to professionals. This race was for everyone, the old, the young teenagers, and even women during an era when female participation in endurance events were viewed as inappropriate. Padre Island, about 113 miles long, is the longest barrier island in the world. This long, skinny, sandy island is the second largest island by area in the lower 48 states. Only Long Island in New York tops it. Off the Texas coast, in the Gulf of Mexico, a narrow island reaches 110 miles from Corpus Christi southward to Port Isabel. This place has seen a strange and vivid past. Mysterious, wild, beautiful, Padre Island. In 1908, the first development was established on the island, the Gulfside Casino Hotel, near the southern tip of the island. But because of storms and hurricanes over the year, it was finally demolished in the early 1950s. Around 1930, a causeway was built to connect Corpus Christi to the northern end of the island, allowing access to the Gulf's beaches. It wasn't until 1970 that development started again. In 1951, Cash Asher, a journalist and author, was the publicity man for the Padre Island Park Board and the Causeway. He came up with the idea of holding the race and became the race's director. The objective was to walk the length of the island end to end. This would be a way to get more publicity for the island and thus attract tourists. Asher named the race Padre Island Walkathon. The term ultramarathon would not be used for another decade. Word of the race was publicized and registration opened in early 1953. The format for this event was as a three-day staged race from the southern tip of the island to the northern end, a distance of about 110 miles. The contestants would walk on no roads, just beach and sandy tracks pounded down by vehicles. 
For the first year, the walkers would cover 25 miles the first day, 42 miles the second day, and 43 miles the final day. They would all camp at the start and then camp for each night after day one and day two. A large support caravan of vehicles would go along with the walkers providing food, medical treatment, news coverage, and transportation for those who dropped out. If a walker dropped out, they were expected to continue with the caravan to the finish. Entrance would be provided tents. The rules were pretty simple. Running was prohibited. The published rules stated, Anyone caught running will be thrown out of the race. Why walk and not run? In the 1950s, the idea of someone being able to run ultra distances still was viewed as inconceivable. I'm, I'm sorry, what? The event was scheduled for Friday, March 27, 1953, and would end on Sunday evening. The race filled up with 70 daring starters. None of them had any true experience with this kind of event. They would learn on the job. The oldest walker was 67 years old, and the youngest starter was 15. Reverend J.D. Holland was the 67-year-old, and he was a minister of Christ Church in Port Isabel, a small community across the water from the start. He was an experienced walker and tried to train for the event. About a week before the race, he went on a 30-mile walk and reported that he wasn't a bit tired when he finished. Reverend Hollins said he entered the contest because at one time, when his health was broken, he recovered by walking. He said, I want to convince my grandchildren that they can come back after being ill if they have the will to do so. Another contestant was Tiny Thompson, a 417-pound taxi cab driver from Brownsville, Texas. He was confident and said, If my dogs hold out, I'll finish right up front. A Boy Scout patrol from Edinburgh, Texas was entered. Several young scouts with their leader took up the challenge. There was no discrimination against women. At least 11 women were in the field, and an award of $100 was put up by a local business for the first woman finisher. All contestants were asked to camp out the night before at the start. At high tide, rides were given for those coming from the north across the causeway, and they were driven down the beach 110 miles to the starting place at the southern tip of the island. Vehicles used were cars, jeeps, pickups, and converted army ambulances. Those coming from the south took a ferry across the water to the start camp. That night at camp, a doctor checked out all the contestants. A member of the Red Cross would watch their health and pull them out of the race if necessary. During the race, small airplanes would be used to fly news copy, photos, and radio recordings to Corpus Christi and would come back for supplies. A ham radio operator would travel with the walkers and stay in contact with the mainland. The race started at 8.30 a.m. on March 27, 1953 with 70 starters beginning their 25-mile day one quest. The ocean views were incredible, but the contestants quickly learned how tiring it was to walk in the sand. To make matters worse, the constant wind blew the sand everywhere. Sunburn was avoided by most of the walkers who wore long sleeves, long pants, sun helmets or caps, 
and smeared protective oils on their hands and faces. Twenty out of the field of seventy didn't do much walking and soon quit. The support vehicles had challenges and continual mechanical troubles. The destination for the day one camp was on the beach near the wreck of the SS Nicaragua. In 1912, the SS Nicaragua, a cargo ship, ran aground at Devil's Elbow during a terrible storm. The wreck could still be seen at low tide. Jesse Shamblin, a 42-year-old plant worker from McGallan, Texas, finished day one in first in 5 hours and 32 minutes for the 25-mile segment. Bonnie White, an employee at the Naval Air Station, and Winnie Bell Brillhart, a 41-year-old mother of four grown children, tied with 6 hours and 40 minutes. More than half of the field, 40 of the 70, didn't make it to the day one camp and were given rides to the wreck site. It was uncomfortably cold during the night. Twenty-nine contestants showed up for the day two start at 6.45 a.m. Many courageous walkers who started the day two stage of 42 miles admitted they doubted that they would make it to the next camp at Yarborough Pass. As they were walking along that day, Frank Jericho found a message in a bottle that had washed ashore on the sands and considered that a good omen. Ricky Lutz used a walking stick and was nicknamed by his fellow walkers the Sheep Herder. Day two took a heavy toll as 20 walkers didn't make it all the way to camp and dropped out. Nine finished day two, including the two remaining women who decided to call it quits at that point. Robbie Pope, age 18, and Winnie Beth Brillhart, age 41. Pope said, Next year we'll know what's up against the sand. Next year I'll finish this walk. Six contestants started day three and walked up Yarborough Pass. Clifford Templeman, a college student, gave up after six miles, and two others soon dropped out during the grueling 43-mile final segment. Three remained and continued to the 110-mile finish. In first place was Jess Shamblin, age 42, of McGallan, Texas, with a total walking time of 28 hours, 48 minutes. He won $250. In second place was Frank Jericho, age 32, of Corpus Christi, with a total walking time of 31 hours, 14 minutes. He won $50. Amazingly, in third place was 15-year-old Boy Scout Charles Bolton of Corpus Christi. He won $40. Those that didn't finish on day two and day three mostly had blister problems. They learned that the type of shoe worn was very important. The three finishers wore leather, solid shoes. Race director Asher thought the event was a great success. Talking about the race volunteers and walkers, he said, This is the best bunch of people I've ever met in my life. Everybody pitched in and helped where they were needed. The 1953 race created quite a stir in Texas, opening minds to what truly was possible. Covering ultra distances could be accomplished by non-professionals. For the 1954 Padre Island Walkathon, the segments for each day were adjusted to 40, 40, and 30 miles. The starters more than doubled to 148 contestants. The race got a lot of attention. Sponsors came forward. 7-Up Bottling Company furnished a truck to serve soft drinks along the way. 
Any thirst you can get, 7-Up can quench quickly, completely. A trucking company provided a wrecker to tow out any vehicle stuck in the sand. A local hotel provided all meals for the contestants and staff from a mobile kitchen that was moved from camp to camp. The support crew that year included about 50 vehicles with medics, cooks, and record keepers. That year, the entry fee was $10. Each contestant needed to bring their own bedding, cot, and tent. The race director emphasized that the race was hard and predicted that only 13 of the 148 would finish. It's a long walk, and only those who have trained for the event will have a chance of reaching the finish line. Defending champion Jesse Shamblin returned along with eight other race veterans, including 16-year-old Boy Scout Charles Bolton and 68-year-old Reverend Holland. That year, the contestants took training much more seriously and regularly trained walking on the island to get used to the sand. Race director Asher more than doubled the risk by growing the field too fast. Yes, he did bring in much more help, but the race that year turned into a race director's nightmare. More news coverage came out that year. A local TV station covered the start. Two radio stations would tape segments for their broadcasts. Life magazine sent out a photographer to cover the race for their new sports magazine. Soon after the start, terrible thunderstorms rolled in with hail and high winds. Sand pounded both walkers and cars. The walkers were miserable and they missed lunch when the lunch jeep didn't arrive because of the bad conditions. To make matters worse, the supply vehicle got stuck in the sand and the contestants, who made it to the day one finish, had to wait until 9 p.m. for dinner. Only 77 out of the 148 arrived in time that day. On day two, the course was the story. The beach was in the worst condition that had ever been seen by locals. Asher had claimed that the Padre Island Walkathon was the toughest, roughest athletic contest in the world. That day, it probably was. The beach was soft and covered with seaweed in most places. The roughest section was a section called the Big Shell, where it was covered with shells. In that section, many of the supply vehicles containing tents, cots, bedrolls, and the 500 gallons of water bogged down and got stuck. The tow truck used up so much gas trying to free vehicles that there wasn't enough gas for several other vehicles that had to be left stranded. J.B. Outlaw, a high school track coach, had been able to set up a blistering pace on day one and continued it on day two, averaging better than 4.5 miles per hour. His total time for 80 miles was 17 hours, 23 minutes. He and the walker in second place arrived at the day two camp ahead of the vehicles because of the terrible conditions. Both claimed that they had no blisters and no sore muscles. Only 29 of the 148 starters reached Camp 2 by 8 p.m., which was the cutoff. Defending champions Jesse Shamblin and Beth Brillhart were among the DNF casualties. But far worse, the equipment trucks with tents and food were nowhere in sight. Without tents, the walkers huddled around small fires and wrapped themselves in blankets. Food was supplied from spectators who still had extra picnic food. The 7-Up truck saved the day by picking up a huge amount of cooked meat, vegetables, and eggs when it went into Corpus Christi to get a new supply of soft drinks. It arrived in camp at about 9 p.m. 
Now you can do your own thing and win your own thing from the Uncola 7-Up. Equipment truck with the tents finally arrived at 11 p.m. Morale was boosted that year by using a generator for light. Only 19 started day three. Outlaw continued on to win the event with a sub-24 hour time of 23 hours 45 minutes. But it was very close. Second place was just eight minutes behind. The women's winner was Erna Leitzberg, an employee at the local naval air station. She won a clothes dryer. One guy walked half the course barefoot after water got into his shoes. Of the 148 starters, 15 men and one woman finished all three days. The champion outlaw said of his race experience, It was as much a mental and emotional strain as a physical one. The other finishers agreed. Leitzenberg, the women's winner, mentioned how lonely it was at times not seeing another walker in either direction. Another walker said, When it rained Friday and the thunder was crashing and lightning was flashing all around and you couldn't see any distance ahead, you began to wonder if you would come out alive. The disasters weren't over. More than 2,000 cars made the trip over the causeway on Sunday to witness the finish and watch a beauty pageant. That caused a massive traffic jam getting to and from the island. For 1955, Jack Sanders took over as race director. Only 68 contestants started as interest was waning or fear of how hard the race was. The event was billed as, quote, the toughest 100-mile walking contest in the world. Reporters from 20 magazines and newspapers were on hand that year to cover the race. Support vehicles included six four-wheeler vehicles and six mule-drawn wagons that were used to pick up the walkers that dropped out. Boy Scouts rode in the wagons to provide first aid. To make logistics much easier, they put 10 50-gallon water kegs at various places along the course so they didn't have to haul them for the entire 110 miles. 60 members of the local ham radio club participated. 20 planes flew covered for the event, transporting newspaper and radio releases and were ready for emergencies. Day one was very hot, causing many to drop out. Walkers were motivated seeing the 7-Up truck in the distance that supplied cold drinks and salt tablets. After day one, Charlie Riley, a 27-year-old insurance salesman and high school track coach, had the lead. He had prepared by walking hundreds of miles. The final day start format was changed that year. The leader Riley started at 7 a.m., but the other walker's start time was determined how far they were behind Charlie. He finished in first with a new course record, a very impressive 20 hours, 59 minutes. 12 finished, Charlie won $500 and a used car. Joyce Wickham, age 23, a draftman for an oil company, set the women's course record of 27 hours, 50 minutes, and was sixth overall. She won $250 and an automatic washing machine. About 15,000 spectators lined the beach at the finish. Instead of a belt buckle, all the finishers were awarded a cigarette lighter with Padre Island Walkathon and their finish place engraved on it. The fourth annual edition of the Padre Island Walkathon in 1956 had 61 starters and 7 women. The overall winners of the previous years 
were all in the event, Jesse Shamblin, J.B. Outlaw, and Charlie Riley. Charlie held the lead each day and bested his own 1955-110 course record by 56 minutes, 20 hours and 3 minutes. He averaged nearly 6 miles an hour for the last 30 miles and obviously was running. He said, I lost seven toenails. It's the pressure from walking. The blood builds up under the nails. Then you have to put a hole in them to relieve the pressure. They fall off later. That's gross. 1953 champion Jesse Shamblin came in third, and Dale Cole walked the entire course barefoot. The race wasn't held in 1957 because it lacked a title sponsor. That year, the Port Manfield Channel was dug without a bridge cutting the island in half. The 1958 event was trimmed to a one-day, 40-mile event, an out-and-back, which greatly simplified the support that would be needed. The difficult big shell section was no longer part of the race, making it easier. Newspapers started calling the event, quote, the wackiest walking event. Riley again entered. He had been training hard. He said, I fig- I'll figure I'll have done 800 miles or more in training before the day of the race. And when I'm not training, I usually run a mile and a half each morning. He explained his strategy for the 40-miler. It depends on the compaction. I'd like to set a steady pace, but I'm not going to let anyone get far ahead of me. If someone wants to set a fast pace in the first 20 miles, I'm going to keep up with them. Riley wore soft leather shoes of crepe soles, Shorts, a t-shirt, and a build cap. He again won that year. The first modern aid stations were established instead of using so many support vehicles following along. The stations were provided at two and a half mile intervals. Food provided that year included sandwiches, chocolate, orange slices, and salt tablets. In 1959, the event had lost a lot of steam, but running was allowed. Only about 20 walkers signed up, and the distance was still 40 miles. But it still was a huge spectator event, mostly because the Miss Padre Island pageant was also part of the festivities. It was getting most of the attention in the press. Because of the small fields, spectators were permitted to drive along the beach with the walkers, but feeding them was strictly forbidden. During the 1960 race, someone went out and stole three of the water cans. Emergency arrangements were made to get drinking water for the participants. In 1961, only about 15 entered. The 1964 event was the 10th edition of the race. The Corpus Christi Junior Chamber of Congress was in charge and they organized a beach party stretching the length of the course. A 100-mile boat race event was added going up and down the course. 3,000 treasure cans were dumped into the ocean to be claimed by spectators when they washed up on the island. All the events totally overshadowed the walkathon. A massive hot dog roast was held in the evening. In 1965, only 15 runners entered. The winner of the very first Padre Island walkathon in 1953, Jesse Shamblin, won for the third year in a row. He ran the entire 40 miles without eating at the aid stations. He held the 40-mile course record with 7 hours and 8 minutes. One year, a dog took away his win. A dog running loose on the beach took a chunk out of my leg. It kind of slowed me down. 1969 was the last year that the Padre Island Walkathon was held. It appears that none of the elite walkers became ultra runners, 
and that the race probably didn't really influence the future ultras. But it was fascinating to see how a supported trail ultra race developed over the years with aid stations. It also demonstrated to the public and participants that you didn't have to be a professional athlete to achieve results that are amazing. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.